the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we join senior Pastor Will Ramirez in a study of the book of Numbers. The nation of Israel was being prepared to enter into the land promised to their forefathers. After wandering in the desert wilderness for 38 years, they were finally going to move forward into all that God had for them. God drew them near to himself by giving them instructions for various offerings and sacrifices so that they could worship him. They recognized that he was holy and entirely different from all other gods. There is no God like our God. There is none as righteous or holy. Today, we will be looking at a different aspect of God's character, namely, His judgments. We join Pastor Will in Numbers chapter 31, verse 1. Numbers 31, we have to cover it. One of the good things about going through the Bible is you're forced to cover some difficult topics, and Numbers 31 is one of them. Now, at this point in time, Moses has begun sharing the everyday duties with Joshua. He's prepared the people for their victory in the promised land by addressing property rights, the division of the land, and by reviewing all their worship practices. We've been going over all those things for the last few weeks. But before they can begin the campaign to take the promised land, under Joshua's leadership, God has some unfinished business with a group known as the Midianites, which leads us to Moses' final campaign as Israel's leader. So in Numbers chapter 31, we continue Israel's journey with the Lord and our journey with Jesus through the book of Numbers. So chapter 31, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the children of Israel, and afterward you shall be gathered to your people. So here we see that God instructs Moses regarding that Israel will be his instrument of justice upon the Midianites. The word avenge, we usually use it in an angry way. God is certainly angry at what they did, but the word here, vengeance, is avenge. It's missing any of the emotional aspects. It simply means to administer justice and punishment. And it is doubled in the Hebrew for emphasis. Avenge by avenging, avenge by avenging the children of Israel on the Midianites. Now the Midianites, you say, what's this whole thing with the Midianites? Well, we have to go back to Numbers chapter 25. So if you can flip back there real quick, I'll summarize, and then we'll look at the part where the Lord tells Moses he's going to deal with them. Remember, the Moabites and the Midianites got together and they hired Balaam to curse Israel, right? But that didn't work out well for them. The Lord overruled all that, and Balaam ended up blessing the nation of Israel. So Balaam goes away, not for long, but he goes away, and everything seems to be fine. Well, Balaam has an idea, and he says, You know, God won't let me curse him, but I can get God to judge him if we get them to sin. And so he goes back to the Midianites and says, listen, if you send your ladies in there and they seduce the men and invite them to your your worship centers where they'll worship your gods, their God will get angry and he'll judge them. And then you don't have to worry about me cursing them. And it works. 
So the men are seduced. They go to the pagan worship centers. They commit all sorts of lewdness and immorality and idolatry, and God begins to judge the nation of Israel. In that process, Phineas steps up to the plate, and he ends up putting to death a leader of Israel and one of the high priestesses who is in charge of this for the Midianites, and that stops the plague. And then the Lord brings the people to a place they repent, and the Lord restores them. Well, at the end of chapter 25, in verses 16 through 18, I believe, It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Vex the Midianites, harass the Midianites, and attack them. For they harassed you with their schemes by which they seduced you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister, who was killed in the day of the plague because of Peor. So here we see that God had instructed to bring vengeance, Moses to bring vengeance upon the Midianites, and now we're going to see it happen. And then after that, Moses' job will be done. It says, after that, you will be gathered to your people. Joshua will be the one to lead Israel into the land. Moses will die in the desert. But what's really cool here is that even though that's a a discipline for Moses' failure, despite that failure, Moses will take his place among all the people who loved God before him. He is still a child of God. He's still forgiven. And he will take his place with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all the other godly people who went before him. And that's interesting because the Bible says that he gave us all these instructions so that we wouldn't sin. Turn over to 1 John with me real quick, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. God gave us all this so that we don't mess up, but praise the Lord, we have forgiveness when we do, if we, if we seek the Lord. This is a Christian life and a microcosm. And it says in verse 1, my little children, these things write I unto you so you don't sin, that you sin not. I'm writing this so you don't fail, you don't disobey God, you don't do the wrong thing, you don't mess up, you don't make the mistakes. But, but if any man sin, we have an advocate. We have an attorney with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation, the satisfying for God's wrath on sin, for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the whole idea is God, he gives us all these instructions. He sends these guys to write this material for us. We have the scriptures so we don't sin. Our goal is to not fail. But if, like Moses, we do, praise God for the cross, right? Praise God that we can come to him and we can still take our place among all the righteous, even though we we still fail sometimes. So that's a great comfort to know when we do blow it. Well, verse 3, Moses, now it's time to select the troops for the war. So Moses spoke unto the people, saying, this is back in Numbers 31, Arm some of yourselves unto the war, and let them go against the Midianites, and avenge the Lord of Midian. Of every tribe, a thousand throughout all the tribes of Israel shall you send to the war. So there were delivered out of the thousands of Israel, a thousand from every tribe, 12,000 armed for war. Now I love this because it says they're going to avenge the Lord concerning Midian. So this wasn't personal vengeance by Moses or petty retribution instigated by Moses. Israel is being God's arm of justice for great wickedness that had been done. Some people are very uncomfortable with the idea of God bringing earthly punishment. Some are uncomfortable with the idea of eternal punishment, but they're uncomfortable with any idea of any type of punishment. Some even think it's not very Jesus-like, and so they'll say the God of the Old Testament's not like Jesus, you know, and so I don't even think they're the same God. There are many scholars out there who they say this all the time, and I think, again, I don't really know if you've read, you've read a Bible, because the Old Testament and the New Testament both talk about the wrath of God. Look at Revelation 6 with me. Revelation chapter 6, when we see the sixth seal judgment, the sixth seal opened and God brings judgment upon the world. You know, we see that the stars are falling from the sky and judgment's coming upon the people. And look at what they say in verses 16 and 17 of Revelation chapter 6. 
and the people, they hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of whose wrath? The lamb's wrath. That's Jesus. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But right now he's Lambo. For the great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? But this is very Jesus-like. This is what the Lord's gonna do in Revelation when he brings judgment upon the world. So this is not un-Jesus-like at all. This is how the Lord who was and is and is to come always is. Now, what's interesting here is that Moses doesn't send the entire army. I mean, this is a massive army they've got. They've got 600,000 troops, but he only sends 12,000. Keep that in mind because this will become significant as we get towards the end of the chapter. Only a small portion of Israel's troops will go. Now, verse 6, Moses is going to send somebody else with him. And Moses sent them to the war, a thousand of every tribe, them and, now we see the one who stopped the plague that was caused by the Midianites, stumbling Israel. Phineas, he's going to go too. The son of Eleazar, the, the high priest, he's going to go to the war. And he's going to bring the holy instruments and the trumpets to blow in his hand. Now, there's some debate on what the instruments are because you could translate the phrase, he will come with the instrument, holy instruments, even the trumpets to blow in his hand. And that's what I personally believe how it should be translated. Some people say he brought the ark out in front, but we have no record of that here and there's no reason to assume that here. And I don't think he was bringing carving knives for sacrifices because we have no mention of sacrifices being offered in this strike force. My thought is it's the trumpets that are being emphasized. Why would that be the case? Well, when we think of Israel with trumpets, a lot of time, what's the most famous trumpet you usually think of? The ram's horn, right? The shofar. You know, that's the one you go to Holy Land or whatever experience and see, and they blow the big ram's horn and whatever. Well, that's not the ones that are in mind here. In Numbers chapter 10, we see that God instructs Moses to make two trumpets made of silver. Those trumpets in Numbers 10, verses 8 and 9, it explains what they're for. It says, And the sons of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets and they shall beat to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets and you shall be remembered before the Lord your God and you shall be saved from your enemies. They're bringing the trumpets because they're sending 12,000 men to fight. We don't even know how many, but when we see the numbers at the end of this chapter, you're gonna get an idea that this is a superior force they're going against. The battle's gonna have to be the Lord's. It's funny because you'd be like, we're God's arm of justice. And you're like, really? We got like 200,000 of us and it's like 12,000 of you. I think you should have sent a bigger army. But the Lord, you know, he sends them with the trumpets to remind Israel that this is not just any battle. The word for trumpets used in Numbers 10 means sacred clarions. They were used not just for holy warfare, but they were used for holy celebrations. So they would bring them out to remind the people that this was something unique. The word holy means something distinct, separate, or unique. So Israel's special feasts, they weren't just regular parties. Be like, hey guys, it's Sabbath, let's throw a party. It was with purpose and intent. The celebrations had purpose and meaning. So the trumpets were a reminder to celebrate with those things in mind. Now, this campaign against Midian wasn't a border dispute between rival nations over land. This was about God's justice upon a spiritual attack that nearly wiped out his people. The blowing of the trumpets, when Phineas would blow them, they would be both a cry to God for supernatural assistance in battle and a reminder of Israel's purpose in the battle. And sadly, they'll forget some of that purpose as they go through it. So verse 7, let's look and see what happens. 
Well, it simply says, and they warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded Moses, and they slew all the males. Doesn't give us a whole lot of details. The word warred there means they engaged in battle with the Midianites, 12,000 against, we don't know how many, but they were outnumbered. Uh, We don't learn much about the battle except that it's a complete victory. No quarter is given to the Midianite warriors, and it says here that including all the warriors, five of their kings were killed. It says, and they slew the kings of Midian beside the rest of them that were slain, namely Evi and Rechem and Zer and Hur and Reba and five kings of Midian. But then notice it mentions here somebody else, Balaam also, the son of Beor, they slew with the sword. Now, before we get to Balaam, we have to mention Zer here because Numbers 25, 15 says that that high priestess girl that was having sex with the guy right in front of the tabernacle, flouting the idolatry, that that was his daughter. So this is one of the guys who instigated this attack upon Israel. A spiritual attack, maybe not a physical one. It was an attack nonetheless. This guy, now the Lord judges him. You know, he's slain here. But in addition to that, we see that Balaam is slain in this battle. Why is he at the battle? He's not a warrior. He's some crazy soothsayer. Well, apparently he'd been contracted to be their spiritual advisor in the battle. Personally, I think he just should have taken the money and run, but he didn't. His greed in taking this gig as well, turned out to be his undoing. You know, that's why Jude verse 11 calls it the error of Balaam for profit. You always end up the loser when you reject a relationship with God for money or possessions or something else, whatever it might be. You always are the loser. You always end up the loser when you choose to disobey God and do something that you think will be better than just being content with him you always end up the loser. You know, it's interesting. Balaam prayed in Numbers 23.10 as he saw the blessing upon Israel. He said, oh God, let me die the death of the righteous. But the problem is he didn't want to live the life of the righteous. So he died the death of the wicked in the company of the wicked. God is so merciful. He is patient with us. He gives us space to repent. Balaam had a lot of space to repent. But if you continue to rebel against him, eventually he has to deal with you in this life and for eternity. And listen, if you've been fighting the Lord, you know, or you're not where you're supposed to be right now, or you don't know the Lord, don't despise the time that God's given you to make things right. Because when God's judgment falls, it is crushing Better to fall on his mercy and be broken. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 21, 44. He said, whosoever falls upon this rock will be broken, but whosoever this rock falls upon will be crushed. I'll settle for being broken and being remade the way he wants me to be. I don't want to be crushed because when the judgment of God falls, it is complete. The Israelites gave no quarter to anyone here. Judgment was upon everyone. Well, maybe not everyone. Look at verse 9. And the children of Israel took all the women of Midian captives and their little ones, and they took the spoil of all their cattle and all their flocks and all their goods. They took them prisoner, all the children, all the women, and they took all their goods, all their possessions as plunder. Women and children were extremely vulnerable back then. They still are today in our society. It's not the same. There are those who might have a career they could go to or something like that if things did not work out for them with their family or their marriage. But in most cultures, it's still not that way today. And back then, there was no culture where they were safe. So they were considered part of the plunder when an army was defeated. Now, you might be thinking, why would God allow Israel to do that? Well, Israel wasn't supposed to do that, so God didn't allow anything. You know, why did God allow Israel to take women slaves? He didn't allow it because he never told them to do that. He told them to wipe everyone out. Now, you might be saying, well, that sounds harsher. We'll get to that in a moment. But don't blame God for something they did that they weren't supposed to do. God said, bring my vengeance upon the Midianites. 
and they didn't. They took them captive. In addition to that, verses 10 through 12, they burn what remains, and they head back home victorious. It says, and they burnt all their cities wherein they dwelt, and all their goodly castles. That just means their towers, their battlements, their defensive structures. Basically, so the Midianites could never return there again and inhabit those places. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both of the men and of the beasts. And so they brought the captives and the prey and the spoil unto Moses and Eleazar the priest and unto the congregation of the children of Israel unto the camp at the plains of Moab, which are by Jordan near Jericho. So the strike force goes out. They are successful in battle. They bring back the women, children, and the possessions, and they return back home to camp. However, their reception isn't exactly a happy one. Look at verse 13. And Moses and Eleazar the priest and all the princes of the congregation went forth to meet them without the camp. And Moses, I love the King James here, was wroth. That's a word we don't use today. You know, we don't tell our kids, I have wrath toward you. But I mean, that's an old English word that he was furious. That's what it means. It means to be furious. He was absolutely furious with the officers of the host and with the captains over thousands and the captains over the hundreds, which came from the battle. And Moses said unto them, have you saved all the women alive? Moses is deeply disturbed that the very women who seduced the men of Israel to worship Baal would now be welcomed into the camp as servants. And that's why he meets the soldiers outside the camp. He says, no way, those ladies aren't coming in here again. Last time they came in here, we almost died. It says here in verse 16, behold, he explains, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord. They rebelled against the Lord. They knew the Lord wasn't cool with this, and they didn't care. They did it anyway. They committed trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, and as a result, there was a plague amongst God's people, the congregation of the Lord. Listen, these women are equally guilty with the soldiers of Midian, and thus they fell under the command of God's judgment. This makes a lot of people uncomfortable because Moses goes on to say, now therefore, kill those women. It makes us uncomfortable because the idea of an armed soldier killing an unarmed woman is distasteful. While the thought is horrifying, can I throw out a few other things, though, that are equally horrifying? If that's horrifying, so is the idea of drowning every single human being on the planet in judgment. So is the idea of burning for an eternity in hell. Those are horrifying thoughts, and they're meant to be horrifying thoughts. They are so horrifying, in fact, that some try to revise the Bible and say that hell is metaphorical, like Rob Bell. You do not want to be listening to that guy. Hell is not metaphorical. Hell is not you on a bad day here. If you think hell is you on a bad day here, you're in for a shocker. If you don't know the Lord, a big shocker, because you'll get through a bad day here. They'll say that, or they'll say like Noah's flood was just local. You know, it wasn't universal. There was very few people that died. The truth is this, guys. Judgment isn't pretty. You know, God is not going to summon the dead before his throne someday and say, now I'm bigger than you and, and you have no chance to stand against me. So even though you defied my righteous laws and you brought harm to others, I'm going to even the odds for a moment to give you a chance to escape judgment. He's not going to do that. God is God and we aren't. And there is a sense that every person who is judged is a defenseless person being run through by a soldier. There's a sense of that because you can't take on God. The truth is God doesn't want anyone to experience that. That's why the Bible says he loved us so much that he sent his son to pay our penalty so he doesn't have to oppose us. So he who is so big and we who could never take him on don't have to get executed that we could be forgiven and we could be restored to him. I'm sure, if, and if you're an officer, you probably have experienced this. I'm sure it's never a pretty scene where you have to go and arrest a woman who's guilty, but I know sometimes it's necessary, right? 
And the judge can't say, well, she's a defenseless woman. When the sentence is given, justice must be served for the protection of the innocent. And these women were guilty of a lot of deaths. God had to deal with them. These women were guilty of cooperating in a plot to destroy Israel. So Moses does not let the strike force go a step further until they finish their job. He says, now therefore kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman that has known man by lying with him. Now, you might be saying, time out, Pastor Will. Okay, I can at least explain or at least understand the execution of the women. But why is he killing the kids? Why are all the male children killed? Can I be frank with you? I don't think I have an answer for you that will fully satisfy you. I don't think I have an answer that will fully satisfy anyone. When we read about this situation, it's meant to be horrifying. It's meant to show us just how horrible sin is. This was a situation that Midian never had to be in, that Midian could have avoided at any stage before this chapter and in this chapter if they chose to repent and follow the Lord. And that being said, though, that I don't think I can fully convince you of anything, I do think there's some things we must consider. Number one, this was a different time and a different place. God forbid, if you were to lose a loved one to someone else, you would want to see justice administered to them. You would want to see them, you know, if they were killed in a drunk driving accident or something like that, you would want justice served, but you would not be the one to administer that justice. Our society doesn't work that way. You know, recently we had the whole event with the the doctor who was guilty and the father charged the guy because he wanted just, what, two minutes alone with him or whatever. I saw people cheering this and I'm like, what kind of society do we live in? no rule of law? We just get to exact our own retribution wherever we want. Are we going back to these times? That's not your job to do. It's not his job to do. There is government in charge of that to do that. And in this case, Israel is that government that God is sending to do that. Different time, different place. You would not be duty bound to kill that person, whether they got off or they got charged with jail or whatever. But see, a child left alive was a boy ingrained with requirement to avenge his people. And that boy would become a man you'd have to fight someday, no matter how much he was in your society. So they killed him off. Now, there's no mention also of remorse or repentance from the Midianites anywhere in this whole circumstance. To leave the male children and their mothers alive would mean to leave the culture of idolatry and sexual immorality alive. And that was far more dangerous than any military engagement Israel might face in the future. Israel's future failure to keep themselves separate from the idolatry of the people around them is what brought about their downfall because they didn't do that. And so they had to take care of this. In the end, Again, I don't think I can satisfy you, but in the end, this is God's judgment upon a wicked people. Now, the reason you and I have difficulty with that and we don't fully understand it is because we don't fully understand the holiness of God. But may I suggest to you that there was someone here who did? May I suggest to you the one that gave the order had a deeper understanding of the holiness of God than you and I did? What did Moses experience up there on Mount Sinai? Remember? He said, Lord, show me your glory. And God held him in his very hand. He held him in his hand. He placed him in the cleft of the rock and then covered it while his glory passed by and he declared his name. Do you think there's any other person besides Jesus Christ himself who's more qualified to understand the holiness of God? I can't think of anyone. I certainly don't. So here's what's interesting. Moses, who'd been held in the hand of God and had probably the deepest understanding of the holiness of God that any human being could, when I understand God's holiness like he did, I'll understand why Moses commanded what he did. And for that, I know you will, you have to turn to Revelation 15 because it prophesies of the day when you will. Turn to Revelation 15 because this will happen again. I realize that the Left Behind series ensures that like no children are born or something like that. You know, they're all taken immediately to heaven whenever they're born. While that's a very fanciful idea and a very kind idea, nice idea, because the idea of children experiencing judgment is detestable to our culture. 
I don't see that in the scriptures anywhere, so I'm not saying it can't happen, but I'm not saying it will happen, that that's what will happen. But look at Revelation 15. Notice it explains specifically those who overcame the Antichrist, so these are tribulation saints, and yet we know we're already there. We're there right by the Lord. Notice whose song they sing when they get there, when the wrath of God is about to be poured out. Look here. Let's just read the whole thing, verses 1 through 4. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. Why are they the last ones? Because in them is filled up the wrath of God. This is all the wrath of God that was poured out upon Christ on the cross, that these folks, because they've rebelled against God, that God sent angels around the earth saying, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't reject Christ. If you do, you're forfeiting heaven. You're choosing hell for all eternity. And they still do it. All that wrath that was poured out on Jesus, now it's going to be poured out upon them. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, and they're standing on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Look whose song they sing. They sing the song of who? Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb. So this is a song we know too. Saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Here it is. Just and true are your ways, thou King of saints. So what you don't understand now that Moses understood then and why he gave this commandment, you will understand someday because you'll be declaring that. Just and true are your ways, O king of saints. You are not unrighteous, God, to do this. You are just to give this judgment to them. You will understand someday. Someday I will sing the song of Moses to testify to the rightness of God's judgment when he brings it again upon the world in the tribulation period. So what do we do now? Until the day we fully understand his holiness, by faith, I must trust that the Lord of the earth does right because he knows what's right better than I do. God is a holy God, far above what we can comprehend, far more than we can understand. God uses his judgment and mercy for the good of those that love him. He was patient with the Midianites and the Moabites, but they would not repent. God gives all people space and time to repent, but if we will not move, God's judgment will come upon us, whether in this life or the next. God doesn't want to judge us. There is freedom from the power and penalty of sin if we would just repent and turn to God, if we would worship and submit to Him on His terms. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.